Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shifabani. Imagine being told that your baby has a rare brain disorder and will probably never walk or talk. It's the kind of gut-wrenching and life-changing moment so many parents of children with rare diseases face, as we've learned on several recent episodes of Raise the Line. As with the other parents we've spoken to, our guest today, Scott Reich, along with his wife, Alyssa, overcame this heavy blow and have devoted themselves to finding a cure for FOXG1 syndrome, the rare and severe brain disorder that afflicts their now three-year-old son, Eli. The foundation they co-founded three years ago, Believe in a Cure, has already funded over 50 research and development projects worldwide. Before Scott's life was upended by Eli's diagnosis, he practiced law at Wilkie, Farr, and Gallagher. He co-founded an online farmer's market and wrote the acclaimed book, The Power of Citizenship, Why JFK Matters to a New Generation. He's currently working in the General Counsel's Office at American Express and is an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And before we get started, I'd like to thank Ellie Leibovitz, who first put Scott and me in touch. So thank you, Scott, for taking the time to be with us. Great to be here, Shiv. Thanks for having me. So before we go into uh, Fox G1, our audience would uh, benefit from just knowing a bit more about your background. What got you interested in becoming a lawyer and then actually winding up writing this book on, on JFK? I, I became a lawyer because initially I wasn't sure quite what else I wanted to do. But what was appealing in particular about the law was the idea that I didn't have to define myself yet. There, The law relates to just about every other piece of society. And I thought that it would make a very uh, good professional background to be able to understand how society works and how people and communities engage with one another. And so I went to law school and uh, practiced law for every year since. And uh, so it's been a good journey. And uh, I've learned quite a bit about the underpinnings of sort of transactions and how people connect with one another and sort of the basis of all sorts of professional relationships. Uh, and to answer your question about the book, Shiv, uh, I've always been drawn to the, the arena of public service, and I've always loved American history in particular. And over the last bunch of years, probably my entire adult life, it has felt that our public discourse has veered very far off course. And so in a completely nonpartisan way, I wanted to explore some of the themes of a presidency from not too long ago that I felt could still be relevant today. And so the, the impetus for the, for the book was my search as a young person for John F. Kennedy's call to service, uh, the famous ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I wanted to figure out, well, where is that today in the 21st century? And perhaps most important, if you agree with me that it's been missing uh, to a degree, how do we bring it back? And so the book was about Kennedy's legacy and the new frontier. Yeah, no, well, I wholeheartedly agree with you that... Uh... You know, having this new, you know, moonshot moment could be very interesting if we could bring that back somehow through through joint leadership. Um, so it's definitely a book I'm, I'm going to be checking out and I appreciate uh, you writing it. I wanted to switch gears now. So let's go into uh, several years ago when Eli was born. Can you walk us through the diagnosis and, um, you know, what you've been up to with uh, founding the nonprofit? So my wife and I have a daughter, Amelia, who's now five years old. Eli, as you mentioned, is three, and we have a son, Dylan, who's one. We had a normal pregnancy with Eli, and he was born, um, and everything seemed to be smooth. And shortly after we brought him home from the hospital, we just felt that something was a little bit off. He was very irritable. He screamed quite a bit, uh, didn't sleep well. His feeding was a little bit inconsistent. And within a couple of months, 
we we were seeing specialists because his eating was just too irregular. It seemed like he was in pain when he was consuming even just you know a bottle. And uh, one thing led to another, and we wound up doing a brain MRI when he was a few months old. And the results of that MRI led us to a geneticist to do a test to understand if there was some kind of genetic condition associated with how Eli had been struggling. And so it was a very difficult time for us waiting for results because it could be anything under the sun. And at the same time, we had to care for him and his his challenging needs. And then in September of 2019, when he was about five months of age, we were called to the geneticist's office. I had asked to get the results over the phone. They asked us to come in. So we knew that there was something that was probably serious. And so we were pretty anxious, of course, going to this appointment. And um, basically, I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were told that the genetic report had come back with a significant finding and that Eli had a mutation in a small gene called FOXG1, which of course we had never heard of. And in fact, the geneticist had never heard of. And um, that this caused uh, this, this brain condition, FOXG1 syndrome, which would basically make it impossible for, for Eli to, to talk, uh, make it very challenging for him to ever walk and, and ambulate in, a, in any normal kind of way, uh, that he would suffer terrible seizures, a sleep disorder, a movement disorder, acid reflux. I mean, the, the, the list goes on. And it's all from a single letter mutation in one copy of one tiny little gene. And I remember sitting in this meeting, and it was almost an outer body experience because at once you're hearing all of these horrible things about your child who is so innocent, right? He's just this little kid. He's a few months old, doesn't know what's going on. Nothing is his fault, obviously. And we're being told the prognosis is basically um, has no hope. And so that's not a comforting feeling, obviously. And yet at the same time, I was trying to, that I was trying to process this. I remember asking the doctor questions about what our future journey would, might look like. And naturally, as parents, you think, well, is there a way to treat this? Is there any kind of clinical trial? What kind of research is being done? And unfortunately, the answer to basically all of these questions was not a lot, no clinical, no clinical trials on the horizon, um, basically just a really tough deck of cards. And so I remember vividly that Alyssa asked the doctor, is there, is there any hope, any hope for a treatment, any hope for something one day? And I remember this just being so struck by it because the doctor said, no, uh, I'm sorry. Um, so we said, well, what, what do we do? And, uh, and she said, well, you should go home and, and love him, which as I've been on this journey, we've heard that many people get not only a terrible diagnosis like this, but also are, are told um, to go home and love their child, which I think many of us find perhaps a bit insulting. Um, what else would we be doing, right? Of course, we, we love our child. Um, but I just felt in that moment an, an instantaneous gravitational pull that despite the intense emotion that overtook my wife and me in this small doctor's office was that we were going to do something about it. I knew nothing about science. I knew nothing about medicine. I mean, I mean, nothing. I took, I think, one science class in environmental studies in college just to satisfy a requirement. Um, med school was never on the horizon for me. And, and yet I just said, well, somebody's going to have to become the expert in this and somebody's going to have to devote their life to it in order to make a better day for Eli and the roughly now 800 or so other children around the world diagnosed with this terrible disease. And so we started believing in a cure.
That's incredible. And, and certainly that, uh, that advice is something I've heard come up in, again and again on the raised line. Actually, John Crowley said the same thing that they were told it's Pompey, Pompa's terminal and just go home and love your child. Similarly, um, Matt Wilsey, I don't know if you know him, sure. but uh, we had him on the podcast. I saw him yesterday in Stanford, actually, uh, was told the same thing. And all three of you have made tremendous progress uh, in, in you know finding a, finding a cure for your kids. Um, so tell us a bit more, like, how is Eli doing right now? And then I'm, uh, let's go into the specifics of Believe in a Cure and, you know, some of the progress you've made to date. There's no other way to say this. Eli struggles. Uh, you know, he's three and a half and he has suffered bad seizures. We've been to the hospital many times. We've been on more uh, calls with doctors, virtual, in person, um, to, as we've tracked down everybody who might be helpful along the way, um, then we can count. And he has lots of therapies. So it's it's a pretty rough go for him and for the family. Uh, we're very grateful that our other two children are are healthy and uh, and they're able to enjoy non, non-traditional, but nonetheless relationships with Eli. And uh, they like wrestling with him in his um in his in his bed. They like um tickling him and uh, making noises that he finds funny where they think they'll get a laugh out of him. Uh, but there, there's no way to sugarcoat it. This is a really challenging journey. Uh, some children with Fox G1, unfortunately, have tragically passed away. So it's there's a constant fear of what could occur and will we be able to control seizures when they come? Are we giving him the right mixture of medications? Because no one really knows the right way to even control uh, many of the symptoms of Fox G1. So that's not even just finding a treatment, which is so difficult, but also just figuring out how do we treat patients um, on a day-to-day basis to help them sleep, to help them not move as frantically and as much and have jerky motions. How do we help them to a degree communicate if at, if at all? And Eli's not able to communicate. So in that regard, um, it's, it's very, it's very difficult. Um, but uh, as one of my heroes, uh, Winston Churchill, once said, uh, you know, we didn't come all this way because we're made of sugar candy. And uh, so with, with that in mind, you know, we started this foundation. We quickly got our 501c3 nonprofit status. And the first thing that we did in recognition of our limitations in terms of knowledge and 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 what we could do on our own was to recruit people who could serve on a scientific advisory board for the foundation. And the idea naturally behind that is to get experts who know a lot more than we do to help us develop a roadmap for how we may go about uh, developing a treatment. And so that, of course, involves the creation of certain cell lines and mouse models and thinking through the types of therapies that could be useful to people suffering from Fox G1 syndrome. And in short, and without going too deep into the science, the basic problem that Eli has is that he has one working copy of Fox G1 and the other copy is effectively off because of this single letter mutation that I mentioned before, which, which for those may, who may not be familiar, that's simply just a, a typo in the DNA alphabet. And so he has of the this Fox G1 gene creates protein, and because he has one copy that works and one that doesn't, he has roughly 50% of the protein that he is supposed to have from this Fox G1 gene. And the reason this condition is so severe is because Fox G1 is, is what they call a transcription factor in non-science parlance. That means it is basically a master gene. It's like a general in the army telling troops where to go. 
And if the general tells the troops to go to the wrong places, things don't go as you expect. And that's exactly what happens with Children of the Fox G1. So the basic premise of the work that we pursue at Believing a Cure is how do we normalize the amount of Fox G1 expression? Or put differently, how do we increase the amount of Fox G1 that Eli and other kids who are deficient in Fox G1 have. And since he has 50% of the protein, we're trying to get closer to 100%. And there are a few different ways to go about doing so. We can try to repurpose a drug, which is a common strategy because these are drugs that are already in the marketplace for some other indication. And we're trying to repurpose them if they have an inadvertent effect that happens to increase Fox G1 expression. We are pursuing gene therapy, gene replacement therapy, where we're, we're essentially trying to develop healthy copies of the gene in a lab and then use a, a, a basically, they call it a vector, but essentially like a spaceship to deliver this vector with billions of copies of the correct copy of the protein that could be of this gene that could be delivered to the brain and a few different other things. There's gene editing, there's antisense oligonucleotides. I don't want to go too deep on the science here, but those are the different strategies we're pursuing. And at present, we have three preclinical programs that are showing in vivo, meaning um, in living organisms like mice, showing positive data, which is encouraging. We've signed a, a, a research collaboration agreement with the National Institutes of Health. NIH, um, which has been a great validator of the work that we're doing and, and obviously helps us in terms of resources to be able to accelerate the work that we're doing. That's incredible progress in three years, uh, all, you know, having now, now these several promising uh, potentials. Uh, I'm curious, you know, w- what have been some of like the influences uh, as you've set up the foundation and scaled, scaled it? Obviously, I think I put you in touch recently with the Fulmers who do venture philanthropy, but before then, you know, you had, you had obviously not been operating in a vacuum. So tell us a bit about those influences. And then also you mentioned about 800 children that you know of uh, around 800 have Fox G1. How has it been building this community of uh, families? Uh, any any highlights there or, or, or lowlights either way? The first question regarding uh, influences, I would say that there have been a number and, and frankly, more often than not, they're non-scientific. Um, so they're really about how do we carry ourselves when we're confronted with the kind of adversity that we don't expect and that perhaps, you know, we don't anticipate ever having to get past in our lives. And so for me, uh, you know, my parents raised me and my siblings with a general belief that we have the power to um, make a difference in our lives and the lives of others and that we have an obligation to do so. And so that belief which I think carries through uh, the the focus and interest in public service that we described before uh, has always been an inspiration for me and has felt made me feel empowered to um, to do something that could be impactful. And my wife, Alyssa, shares that feeling, too. And so we draw strength from one another in terms of getting through the day. Sometimes she's having a tougher day than I am. Sometimes it's the opposite, but we try to lift each other up. Another thing that's been very helpful and inspiring for us has been connecting with leaders of other rare disease communities, because we're not the only people on this type of journey. And in fact, that's probably been one of the biggest lessons that I've learned throughout this, which is that we're not alone. And it's it's tempting to feel lonely because of how challenging the journey is. And because at the end of the day, people can help as much as they can, but it's in our house where all the stuff resides and we have to sleep there and we have to deal with everything, uh, you know, a, a, a lot and it never really ends. So we never get to turn off and shut down. Um, but in speaking with other people who have developed you know, who have built organizations, who have developed treatments or or are in the process of doing so for 
diseases that impact their children. We've been able to get a lot of tips. Um, we've been able to learn about some of the uh, hiccups and obstacles that come along the way, as well as how do you get wins? How do you how do you basically put things together in a way that can advance your work? What we're really talking about here, Shiv, is building community. It's it's around connecting with people that have may not may not have the same journey, but maybe on a similar one. Um, we all deal with with challenge and adversity, and I think that we reveal our character and how we try to embrace those challenges and overcome them. So, um, you know, part of it also to the latter point part of your question is connecting with other families that have the same disease as Eli. And so we get a lot of inbounds, of course, from families around the world who have either read about the work that we're doing or come across it in some way and want to learn how are we doing? How are we doing it? What kind of support can they provide? And and they've done so. So again, it's about building community. Um, the more that we can bring people under the tent and connect with one another and recognize that we're similar and have challenges that confront us all, I think there's strength in, in that that we can all draw. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, I think that's something we've we've learned a lot through these interviews as well. And uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll have the the rare as one uh, group from Chan Zuckerberg on, and that that even in their name, rare as one. While each individual condition or zebra is uh, is rare, uh, together it affects, as we said, as we know, hundreds of millions of people directly, and then their families. Um, what are some of the things you've learned about yourself uh, on on this challenging journey, and and things you've learned maybe about others. First thing that comes to mind, Shiv, is that there's a reservoir of energy and hope and optimism that I think many of us have within ourselves that we may not know about until we're really tested. And uh, in, in my case, I just continue to try to dig deeper. And when there's nothing left in the tank, just find more and keep going. Uh, we're racing against the clock here because we don't know what Eli's journey is going to be. And we know that the earlier we're able to intervene with the treatment, the better the potential outcome may be. So with that sense of urgency in mind, uh, there's an element of stamina and, um, and as I said, just kind of high octane energy that I think a lot of us have when we put our minds to something and, and say that we're not going to rest until we've achieved one of our you know, big goals. Uh, I think that one thing that I've learned and, and actually um, another rare disease parent gave me some advice very early on that I thought was very compelling and I've never forgotten it. And it was in the context of receiving support from people that are in your orbit, in your network, not people impacted by rare disease, but people who are in your community who may be helping your foundation and so forth. And what this gentleman said was, keep your expectations low and don't get angry uh, when somebody might disappoint you because you'll wind up being angry all the time. And I thought, gee, that sounds like a pessimistic way to go about something. But what I think he meant was that you get surprised in both directions, positive and negative, around people that are in your life and how they step up or don't step up to support you. And I'll focus more on the positive because you know I'm, I'm a half glass full type of person. Um, there have been so many people in my life who I, ex I thought would step up and have, but I have been unbelievably surprised and blessed to have people in our lives who 
I really didn't think would would do something significant or substantial. And it doesn't have to be only writing a big check, although that's, of course, very important. Um, but I've been I'm pleasantly stunned by the number of people who have stepped up and want to be there. And, um, you know, so we've been just really fortunate to have a community partly that we've built and partly that we've been blessed to just simply be part of, whether it's locally on Long Island where we live or just around the world when people feel connected to our story. Um, we've had people come out of the proverbial woodwork who we may not have spoken with for 20 years, and then they write a huge check because they just say, hey, I came across this story and uh, it moved me and we love you and we want to we want to be helpful. And, you know, they're, <laughs> what do you say? I mean, other than thank you. Right. And feeling how humbled we are to receive that kind of support. There are some people that may not be able to write a large check, but who drop off cookies at our door or send in dinner, you know, every couple of months. And these small things to just remind us and people like us that we're not alone and that people care about us and the journey that we're on are, are really humbling and moving experiences for us. So what we've learned is that despite all the stuff that we hear in the world about how divided we are politically, despite all the stuff we hear about all the the darkness in the world there there's a lot of light and uh the capacity for humans to do good is is truly endless and so based on that belief we're we're grateful to have this community and we also believe in the work that we're doing we believe that something that some might perceive to be impossible is merely something that has not occurred yet and uh, so we feel confident that we're going to develop a treatment. I can't give you a definitive timeline. I don't know exactly what that outcome looks like, but we feel we will get a treatment into Eli and a lot of other impacted kids. And that's the force that drives us forward every day. Well, that, that's inspiring. And I think a really good reminder for our listeners that, you know, many of them are currently students. They don't have, you know, big checks to write in many cases right now, but things they could be doing to help, including at a minimum awareness and education, uh, you know, educating themselves about Fox G1 so that when they meet patients like Eli, they're able to be as helpful as possible, at least getting them to to your foundation, um, to other other kind of things that people could do uh, that you kind of mentioned. So, you know, you obviously know a lot about Fox G1, um, and that's another commonality I've had with, I uh, found from parents of children with rare diseases, is how quickly they educate themselves and, you know, become basically their, their biggest advocates and scientists in, in their own right. You know, tell us about how you got educated um, over the last few years um, and, and were able to become an actual like contributor and decide which projects to fund uh, of, of, you know, with Believe in a Cure. The, the, the best way to describe it, Shiv, is to say that it, it was the equivalent of being on a boat in the middle of the ocean and somebody just dumping us into the middle of the Atlantic and having no idea where to go or how far land might be. That, that's the best way to do it. You fight like hell. That's what you do. You fight like hell, even without the answers, until you figure out in which direction you want to go or for how long you need to do it and what other resources you may need. So in, in our case, I basically said, well, I don't really know even where to begin looking, but the logical thing is for me to Google Fox G1 and start reading articles from scientific papers and academic studies and see if the gene has been mentioned in different places. And for every single paper that I read, there were probably 200 words that I had to look up. And I went through the painful process of, well, I'm going to have to look up every one of them. I'm going to have to uh, try to f understand them. And, and I think that to a to a degree, I, I, I can't say that we're lucky because who would ever want to be on this journey? But we are fortunate that this journey began for us in a time in history when information is accessible and information is transferable. 
back in the day, and, and when I say back in the day, I'm talking even a decade ago, but certainly beyond that, it was almost impossible to figure out where to get the right information, from whom to get it, who you could trust, and how do you connect with all of these scientists and physicians and bring them all together. And now through the brilliance of technology and innovation, we're able to connect with people almost in real time and connect them with one another. And so for me, the education began through through the internet of just finding what was out there. And then when I identified some studies uh, that had been done that mentioned the Fox G1 gene, I would simply send emails to the people who wrote the articles and say, hey, I want to introduce myself. I'm Scott Reich. My son, Eli, has this horrible condition, Fox G1. I see that you've published on it. Can we have a conversation? And from there, and in parallel, we were forming a nonprofit knowing we were going to be sponsoring research. Um, I was able to get uh, in, in conversation with a lot of people. One of the things that I'm proud to say is that the scientific community, perhaps more than any other community of which I've been part in a professional sense, uh, are, is composed of the most generous, warm-hearted people that I've ever encountered in my life in terms of just willingness to help and often free of charge because somebody feels connected to a story or simply feels badly about the circumstances. And these are people that get contacted a lot and they keep opening up their, you know, their, their, their calendars to, to, to get time in and to make introductions that could be helpful. Um, and so once I got a, a general sense of what does this Fox G1 gene do and in parallel was recruiting members of our scientific advisory board, I was able to start you know, developing a, a roadmap in conjunction with the scientists. And I was asking for their input on proposals we were getting so that we could make sure they were scientifically vetted in the right ways. And through time, because I probably have, have been on, I don't know, 2,000 calls, 3,000 calls over the last three years, um, maybe it's even more than that, um, you, you just start to pick it up, right? It's sort of the old fake it till you make it. And, uh, you know, when you start hearing things, I might have to be on a call and have to jot a note down so I could look it up later or ask one of our scientists, hey, could you run that through with me one more time? But you know, just going through it humbly as a student and taking the the lawyer's eye of, of diligence that uh, has helped to find my my other career uh, and say, you know, let me put that to use here. Yeah, well, again, it's very impressive. And uh, and and another commonality I think you have with people like, you know, John Crowley and David Fagenbaum and others who've, who've gone through that process. You know, going from Google to scientific papers is something we're all about. And one reason we're so focused on this, because ever since Osmosis joined Elsevier, we're now part of the company that publishes the most scientific studies and owns, you know, the Lancet and Cell and these great, great uh, research publications. So we're really excited about what we're going to be doing next year in terms of providing even more access to these rare disease articles. Uh, so patients like yourself or parents like yourself can get them all for free and connect with those researchers more easily. Um, so that's been a, a real big focus of ours. So it's good to that's hear great. that's how you went went about doing it. Sure. Um, I know I want to be respectful of your time. So uh, I just had a couple of last quick questions. You know, I'm curious if, you know, since you know Osmosis is a teaching company, one question we like to ask is if you could teach anything to any group of people, what would it be and why? Well, I think there are some things that the field can do to improve access to information consistent with what Osmosis is looking to do. Uh, so, for example, a, a couple things around publication uh, of, of studies. The first is that most publications, if you look carefully, and it's not going to take you long, are talking about some advancement that was made, something that was discovered, something that was innovative. And that's really valuable, of course, right? Because we learn from one another new ways to think about other things and new ways to approach challenges. But one of the things that we don't see a lot of is publication of bad data. Uh, I don't mean that where the experiment was done incorrectly or poorly, but where 
the experiments simply don't have the desired outcome. Because what I have learned in this journey so far scientifically is that we learn almost as much, if not more sometimes, from where we fail to help inform where we may be able to succeed. And so I would love there to be more of a professional field central focus on Basically, when scientists have experiments that they've performed, but they're not happy, they don't want to submit them to the big publications because it didn't prove something that they wanted, perhaps there's a way to still aggregate that information and share it with people with respect to specific genes or projects so that people don't replicate some of the same failures and can learn and save time and money and get us faster to the clinic. So that, that's one thing that, that I would love to sort of just say to the world out there, can we figure out a way to do this? The other thing is that as generous as the scientific community is, one of the challenges is that a lot rides on publication, especially in the academic settings at universities. And so what that actually engenders is more competition. Now, when it comes to drug development, I like competition because it's pushing people to get to the clinic as fast as possible. It's pushing people to you know, get their juices flowing and think about things creatively and so forth. Um, but sometimes there, there are instances where people may not want to share and be as forthcoming as they can be with information because they're saving something for a publication that may not come out for two years. And the rest of the field in whatever that disease or gene might, might be could actually benefit tremendously from that work. So I wish A, that there was a way to speed up the publication process, but B, I wish there was a way to take to, to make it so that scientists in, in academic settings in particular could feel more comfortable sharing credit for things so that it wasn't that their NIH grants or, or university funding are based on their publications because it creates a cycle that's not good for the patient at the end of the day. And, and for, for what we care about, all we care about is can we get to the clinic, right, for as many diseases as possible. And given the technological, scientific, and medical advances, things are possible. It's just a question of time. And so if we can cut out some of these obstacles, that would be really fruitful and valuable for the field. That's why we love to ask the question. It's uh, very insightful and uh, appreciate you being able to share those so articulately. Um, you know, as you know, our audience comprises many current and future healthcare professionals. So I'm curious what your advice is to them about uh, approaching, uh, you know, say they are, they were the ones sitting in front of you and your, your wife and Eli when he was diagnosed with FOXG1. What's your advice to them about, you know, being the best advocates they can be for parents and families with uh, rare diseases? It's a great question, Shiv. And before I answer it, the first thing I want to say to people who, who fit into that profile is thank you. Thank you so much for going into this space and for caring about patients even before you meet them and their families, right? I mean, we need caring people who are going to be really educated and who are going to be really smart and compassionate. So I'm really excited to continue having so many wonderful people entering this this field. I think in terms of advice, the, the first thing I would say is that nobody knows how anybody else feels, especially when you're confronted with such a dramatic and traumatic uh, piece of information. And so the first you know, bit of advice, obviously, is just be as compassionate as possible. We never use words like, for example, I know how you feel, right? Nobody knows how somebody else really feels. But there can be experiences shared, perhaps more than advice, meaning, you know, just be a little cautious with how you how you frame things. Um, given that there are a lot of unknown diseases out there or just very ultra rare diseases like FOXG1, I think it's important also for uh, people to get informed as best they can when they're delivering information to uh, impacted families. And I wish that the journey would not really stop with diagnosis because oftentimes the people who are delivering the diagnosis 
are in a are, are in a position to actually help impacted families get settled with who the right physicians are and perhaps connect them with the right people in their space who are doing research. One of the goals that we have at Believe in a Care, and this is partly why we named the organization Believe in a Care more generically, is because as we progress and hopefully have tre a treatment or multiple treatments for FOXG1, we would like to create a platform that makes it easier for other rare disease families to be able to synthesize the information, take their diagnosis, and learn how to action it to the extent that there are not other existing work streams to, to push a treatment forward, right? In other words, we're trying, we would like to help cut down the timeframes for other people who are similarly situated. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think that if, if people who are healthcare professionals can stay in the fight with the family um, and be a resource for helping guide them, not only medically, but also scientifically, that can be really helpful and appreciated. That's a great, great collection of advice. And hopefully some of those uh, listening to this will decide to to spend a summer, spend a year, or spend a career, uh, you know, working with uh, families like yours uh, on rare diseases like FOXG1. Before we let you go, Scott, is there anything else you want to get across to our audience about you, the foundation, how they can find it, how they can be helpful, uh, et cetera? Yeah, we, we would love and certainly invite people to visit our website, which is webelieveinacure.org, webelieveinacure.org. Uh, so you can learn a little bit about our story. We've been on the Today Show. We've been in People Magazine. Um, our story may not be so rare after all because of all the rare disease groups that are out there. You know, but at the same time, we are an ultra rare disease and need as much support as we can as we can garner. So we welcome support in whatever way that could be. Um, it could be financial. It could be volunteering in some way. We've got a number of different things. If there are people that are scientific or medically inclined, um, we also have ways for them to get involved in the organization, too. And there's an email address on our website where we welcome hearing from the community. So at the end of the day, I just want to you know say thank you to, to you, Shiv, and for all the work that you and your team are doing. I think it's wonderful to raise awareness for all these conditions. As, as you well know, and many of our listeners probably do too, there are estimates of between seven and 10,000 rare diseases out there, which is defined in the US as fewer than 200 impacted people, 200,000 impacted people. Um, that's a lot of diseases and it, it, it impacts tens of millions of people. And so we're talking about between the people who are afflicted and the families who care for them, we're probably talking about over a quarter of the American population and certainly the world population. So this is this is rare, may seem like, oh, less common, but in aggregate, this is not less common. This is mainstream. And our community needs to continue to get the word out and we need to get as much support as possible to figure out ways to work together and advance our collective goals. Absolutely, Scott. Well, I mean, it's, it's the least we can do, and we're looking forward to doing much more over the coming uh, months and years. And with that, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, and more importantly, for the work that you, uh, Alyssa, and your foundation are doing on behalf of patients like Eli and, and, and many others uh, around the world, really. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And with that, I'm Shiv Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Podcast.